Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle. And as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by award-winning artist, designer, and architect, Suchi Reddy. Stay tuned. We're coming up on springtime with longer days, happy holy colors, and even my birthday. So in a world of chaos, my optimism meter has shot up significantly. I'm also grateful for your optimism right now in listening to the show and sharing it with your friends, subscribing to and reviewing the podcast, and following us on social media at Dr. Abhay Dandekar. So with this optimism, I've been thinking a lot about how we inhabit, experience, and interact with the space and environment around us and its effect on us. It's what led me to a conversation with artist, designer, and architect Suchi Reddy, whose mantra is the idea that form follows feeling, attentive to the concept of neuroaesthetics. Suchi was born and raised in Chennai, and her upbringing was filled with a strong affinity for art, culture, and architecture. She came to the U.S. when she was 18, landing first in Detroit as a student and then spending time in the South before founding her New York-based firm ReadyMade. Suchi's award-winning work is human-centered, interactive, and immersive, with a diverse range of private projects, public contributions, and collaborations in her portfolio. Her expression reflects a respect for community, inclusion, and dialogue, the essence of form-following feeling. For example, her interactive sculpture entitled Me Plus You on display at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. integrates artificial intelligence for a serene balance between individual and collective experiences. I chatted with her about it all, but I started by asking her a critical question that has always puzzled me, in that how does one truly know when an artistic project is actually done? (laughs) Very good question to start off with. Well, you know, work for me is very much a creative flow it's about just sort of being a channel in a lot of ways you just sit there and you kind of look at the you know you take in all the information you look at the problems of uh, or the issues presented or the challenges or the limitations presented by what you're required to solve creatively and then you know generally i go to sleep that's that's generally my tactic and i wait for the ideas to sort of you know i wake up the next morning and i'm like i, I think i know what i want to do interestingly enough Ideas are, I think, very much in a way like karma, you know, it's Mm. like, it's not a predetermined situation, you kind of follow a line, and then you listen to something else, and you change a line, and then you follow another line. So you keep going, but there is a sense when something is done, you know, when it's done. You know, generally speaking, I mean, if I'm dealing with architecture, I always have a deadline, a client, uh, you know, a decision to move in, a date at which things need to be ready. And, and that sometimes can can cause you to strategize one way. For if I'm working on an artwork or a large installation, uh, sometimes those same parameters exist. At the other uh, instances of those things, I just, it comes in kind of fully fledged. 
Yeah. So you sort of know what you're working towards and you set up the outline and then when it's done, it's done. Is that feeling, is that idea simply the measurement of how well you feel at the moment? Is it a negotiated target sometimes that you have to, you know, again, <laughs> like you say, let marinate a little bit and, 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 you know, sort of sleep on that? Well, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot um, lately, and I think it's a function of getting older. It's a function of having done this for so long that at some point it becomes intuitive. And I'm sure you know this in your practice. It's it's very much, you know, you, you, you're just flowing with the information. And there's kind of a creative flow that happens. And it's really a beautiful state. It's incredibly inspiring. And one feels really great when you're in it because everything is kind of in the right balance. You know, the problem, the solution, the process, everything is working well together. And um, I love that feeling, just love that feeling. It's, it's what I want to create in life in general, not just yeah. in work. You know, I wish it for everyone. And um, it really is a thing about process. So I want it to be as lovely for me as it is for the people that I'm working with mm -hmm. and, you know, for my clients, because it's always a collaboration. Right, right. In that way, when someone who may be unfamiliar, perhaps with the neuroaesthetics Mm -hmm. of a project, of a design, yeah. you know, the outcome perhaps of what you're mm -hmm. trying to accomplish. Is that really how that's defined? How well someone feels when they're actually either going through the process or for that matter, when they're experiencing the final product? I think we measure, and measure is a tricky word, so I'll use it within quotations. Yeah. Um, how someone feels, how someone reacts to a space, to an experience. This is how I measure my work anyway, whether I measure it through the lens of neuroesthetics or do I measure it, you know, to me, it matters that there is wonder, that there is pleasure, that there is sensuality, that there's all of these things that satisfy someone because about 10, I think it was about 10 or 12 years ago, I was introduced to this idea that neuroscience and architecture could exist um, together. And, you know, I was just completely taken by this um, because when I was about 10 years old, I had the good fortune of growing up in a house that was actually designed by an architect in Genet because we didn't, you know, at that time, that wasn't really such a common thing. And my father, being the visionary that he was, had the good sense to hire a good friend of his who was really inspired by Japanese design and our house, you know, had all of these elements and my mother created all of these interior elements. So I grew up with all of this around me. And one day, about 10 years old, I had this epiphany. I just knew that my house was making me a different person than my friends. Mm. And it wasn't better. It wasn't worse. It was just different. Yeah. And I knew that it was having an effect. I knew it was a protagonist in my life. I knew that it was an actor in the things that I was going to become. And you know, when at that age, you're not really sort of processing this um, intellectually, right? You kind of internalize it into yourselves and you kind of see where it takes you. Yeah. So sure enough, it comes time to go to college and, and, you know, I'm talking to my dad and, you know, I said, you know, I think I had this encyclopedia that I had been given as a child and the archaeology was like so beautiful in there and I wanted to be an archaeologist and, or an architect. And my dad said, well, I see you didn't get past the A's in the book, but... <laughs> Yeah, you know, archaeology, darling, in India can be very difficult because at those times, you know, you're in a very small place. There's no water. There's no electricity. There's no way to get there. There's no way to get out of there. He was a little concerned for. His it was maybe the only thing in life my father ever told right. me not to do, because he was actually a very, very open person, you know. And so, given my epiphany, I settled on architecture, and I have yeah. to say. Um, and it's since then taken me through that into art, into public installations, 
into thinking about ideas like science and architecture because architecture is such an amazing art. It's really the container for everything. And it's not just a passive container. You know, and I think this is the mistake people make. They all think, you know, it's all passive. It's not. It's constantly acting on you. You know, in your case, have you ever had unexpected visceral reactions to architecture or design that perhaps uh, were surprises to you? Absolutely. I mean, I've burst into tears uh, in places, you know, I have felt tingles, I've, I've had bodily reactions to space, you know, and, and I know this, I'm not alone, you know, there's lots of people who do this, but you know, it sounds crazy. So they don't want to say it to people and go, oh, you know, this really affected me. Yeah, because they don't know how to explain it. And neuroaesthetics is really kind of a nascent science, you know, it's only about 15 years old. And so it's still a field that's growing and, and scientists and artists and architects are trying to figure out a common language and figuring out how we even speak together in the same way, because the way we do things are so different. But I truly believe that our problems coming up are multidisciplinary problems. I don't think we can solve anything that's out there in the world with one view. I think we have to bring everyone to the table. And really, artists and architects are those people. Well, and as a creator, as someone mm-hmm. who's, in fact, bringing these kinds of experiences to others, is the variable perhaps different for Indigenous cultures? So that when, when an Indigenous person to a region or an d- Indigenous culture mm-hmm. to an area, their visceral reactions may be completely different to a design piece than someone else's. Absolutely. Does that have to be taken into account when you're actually in the yes. process? It does. And, you know, this is why I say design is always political. You cannot ignore it. You know, everything you do is a political act, whether you think about it that way or not, you are creating these kinds of ripples in the world and you need to be conscious about it. You need to think about how that's affecting people. I mean, we design for a specific user, you know, I mean, it's funny. I just asked, got asked to design a birdhouse. And it's a really interesting project. And today I was walking around and I, I, in the city and I hear a bird and it's winter, right? It's February. And I look and it's a kingfisher and he's at the bottom of a tree on the street. And he's literally, I was trying to take a picture of him and he was like peekabooing with me around the tree. And I just thought, now, if I were designing a house for you, yeah. what, would I, what would you want? Right. You know, so it's the question to ask always. It's a question to ask, what does this need to be? Because I fully believe that we build our worlds outside of our bodies. You know, so we start with our bodies and then it's our clothes and our homes and our cities and our, our towns and our cities and our countries. And we, it goes that way. Yeah. And you have to be mindful with the same kind of mindfulness and engagement that you engage with your body with how you engage with the world. Well, and it sounds like the central core of creation then has to be with the empathetic lens in mind. Absolutely. <laughs> you nail on the head, empathy is, empathy is the word. Well, and, and, and in thinking about that, your recent work at the Smithsonian is mm-hmm. just so immersive. It is based upon so much interaction and sort of amplifies this this idea of engagement. What's the value then for the designer of that interactive engagement, particularly when you're actually in the process of making this, thinking about what that engagement and that interaction is supposed to be versus what it ends up being? Well, you know, when you're an artist, that's the 
that's the beauty and the freedom of it, I think, is you set up this kind of thing and then you let the experience unfold. And the, the participant is as much a part of the outcome as the system that they're participating in. And it's really an allegory for how we're set up in the world. Yeah. So my sculpture in the Smithsonian is in the rotunda of the Arts and Industries building. It's on the exact site that Edison first unveiled his light bulb and the moon rocks were shown. And, it, you know, it's this, it's this crazy space that... Yeah has so much meaning, particularly for people like us as immigrants, you know, to think that, oh, we came to this country. And and actually, one of the beautiful things I have to tell you at the opening, I was standing there and all the Indian families who came around and saw me, they were so excited. Yeah. And it was really just this wonderful thing. You know, you feel like you've done something not just for yourself, you've done something for everyone. Yeah. Um, aside from the fact that, you know, the work is meant to be experienced sure. by other people. But the the crux of the work is really asking people, Give me a word for your future. So when you ask them a word, they stop to think. And that little bit of self-awareness, that's really what I'm looking for. That's the piece. And when you speak into the sculpture, then, you know, using artificial intelligence and machine learning, it translates it through also visual code that I worked on back into like a vision of lights and patterns that's particularly yours based on your voice, based on your intonation, um, you know, it understands uh, emotions and then gives you, you know, a series of uh, like patterns and colors like a mandala. And then that color goes into the central part of the sculpture and you're affecting everyone else. And uh, it's a collective kind of a repository of all of our ideas of the future. And when you tell people that and you see the kind of joy they get, at the idea of being their own creators. It's an amazing thing. People love to make things. People love to create. Sure. And it's such an in, uh, you know intrinsically optimistic act yeah. of doing something and having something beautiful return to, even if it's a sad word, you know, it still looks beautiful. And then the next word is better. You know, yeah. it's not as sad. Yeah. And, you know, beauty has this effect. Beauty has this effect on people. And, you know, so this is how I kind of tie in everything I do in my life, whether it's architecture, whether it's art, whether it's space, whether it's a building, whether it's a textile, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, it really is all the same thing. It's part of the same way in which we as humans experience. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Suchi Reddy. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, I'm excited to share another upcoming event that's being brought to you by Indiaspora, which is inspiring the global Indian diaspora to be a force for good. It's an event called Women at the Table, Investing in Equity, and it promises to be an insightful conversation with some amazing leaders about propelling financial agency and strategies. It's happening on March 31st at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, and register now at indiaspora.org. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with artist, designer, and architect, Suchi Reddy. How much does reverence to the past or reverence to your foundations and maybe nostalgia even, especially as an immigrant, especially as an Indian from Chennai, sort of inform this work? I think about that a lot. Because when I first came to this country, I had a pretty good ear for languages. And, you know, I learned to speak with, I came to the Deep South, first of all. Yeah. And so that was, I didn't come to, you know, New York or uh, the West Coast or any big city. I was in a small city in the rural South. And you, you can imagine coming in with an Indian accent and not being understood by people. Sure. It didn't get me very far. So then when I went, when I came to New York, finally, when I moved here, people would be like, well, why don't you have an accent? And I was like, why would I? 
Right. You know, don't you try to speak French without an accent? Don't you, you know, I mean, isn't that the point? But it's a very interesting thing that people think that they can pin your idea of your heritage mm. to those kinds of presentations that are superficial to a lot, to a huge degree. You know, I think our spiritual heritage is something that I carry with me constantly. You'll see it in all my work. Yeah. If I sat there and tried to explain it to you, you would see it. You'll see my sculpture. It's in the form of a lingam. You know, you will yeah. look at other, you know, there. it's all there. But I don't want to be overt about it. You know, I'm also a private person. I don't really want to tell you which parts of my life I'm letting you share. Almost let the, it, let the user discover that in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Like, I remember in the old, in, when I first started my design practice, too, people would be like, oh, I expected your work to be so colorful. And because you come from India, and I'm like, no, I'm working. The light here is completely different. Yeah. You know, I can't put the same colors here and have them look the same. They don't even work in the same way. Right. So why would I do that? You know, but to have these kinds of, I've never been somebody that's been good at labels. I've never been someone who's good at being in a box of any kind. And all of these things are the things you fight. You're, you're fighting these things. And then you also have, like, if you've been an immigrant like me, who's been away from home long enough, yeah. when you go back, you also know you're different. Right. You know, like people can look at you and know that you don't live in India all the time. And it doesn't matter. You don't even have to open your mouth. You don't have to move. And I've often wondered what that is. Have you found that? Completely, right? And we, we all experience it, whether it's your mannerisms, whether it's the nonverbal communication cues that, <laughs> that people get, there's this, you know, it's a new nostalgia then, right? Like that experience yeah. is very different than what your experience must have been in that, in that home growing up. Now, at least, when, when someone does experience the, the work, is the product meant to be viewed as, say, foundational? Or is it more final in, in the sense that, you know what I mean? Like do, do yeah, people do take their experience and they say, wow, this is something for me to build on or like, wow, that's it. That's the so-called mic drop. No, I think it's, it's so foundational. It's so true. And that really is a, a great way to put it, you know? So when I design a house for someone, when I design a building for, for a, an agency or, or a company, it's foundational because what that is, is a container that's going to help those people be their best selves. It's going to help them do what they want to do in life in all the ways in which it can. And when I make an artwork, it's the same thing. You know, all my artwork is about agency and community and individual, individual responsibility and collective agency and really how to look at both of those things and understand who we are as part of this collective. And that's this other, you know, the idea that this comes from our heritage, that we are all one that everything we do affects everybody else. And, you know, we have to understand that we're part of this continuum. And so it is foundational. I've read that you've described yourself in the past as a serenist, <laughs> which I love, by the way, when you're thinking about the process and being so thoughtful, as you described and letting things sort of marinate overnight, or so you can actually digest them and then get to the creative process. Do you need conflict or chaos as a substrate to actually resolve in order to find serenity? Or, or are you just simply harnessing and discovering the serenity that's already present and all around? Oh my God, that is such a good question. I really will have to think about that a lot. But 
might have to go you might have to live on that overnight and let us <laughs> yeah, no I'll, I'll give you an answer now and we'll have to come back to you tomorrow i i think it does happen both ways uh, there are some times when there's an overriding like for example if i'm designing a house that has an amazing view and like for currently we're doing a house that's on a wooded site and it's got a mountain and it has a river and you know all of this on the land there's nothing else you need to do you just need to answer that yeah. you need to allow the experience to include that because that is so special when i'm working on maybe more challenging urban projects that don't really allow the kind of flow that you think is maybe ideal for what the client is wanting or the artwork isn't quite you know it's too big for or your idea is too big for the space in which it's going to be displayed then you have to really work with that yeah. and that affects you in a different way but finding the serenity in things i think is for me has always been important and i see that a lot in any you know people will find this rather interesting i think because you know our culture is a culture of overdoing everything yeah. you know look at our arts look at our you know we can take it to the max like nobody else can yeah within that though there is an order like if you distill all of that down to what it is you will find the same serenity that abstract expressionists were trying to discover in putting their lines together it's all the seed of it and it's the seed of where you take that so for me it's always like getting back to the origins of things sure and really kind of stripping things away to say what do we need to expose here yeah. what is not being seen you know what's invisible and it seems like there's such a respect to that central core even through this visual or external surface of excess that there's always something very simple and you know again serene that's that's at the core of this in order for someone to realize that or to in fact create that sense does that take practice like anything else do you yes. have to have some iterative <laughs> learnings there to get to that point. I will say that, you know, it's often I get asked by young people a lot, you know, cuz I'm not so young anymore. And you can tell you can, you know, they ask you questions they're like, "Well, I have been doing this for 30 years, you know." Yeah. So 30 years into it, it's a bit more fluid than when I started. Sure. When I would look for the answer whereas letting the answer find me. Mm. And, you know, it really takes time to get to that place, you know, to to have the confidence in yourself, to know that you can support yourself in finding that answer. It's a journey. When you're around peers or colleagues or you find inspiration from a bird, is it such that it's actually then easier to describe as and articulate um as opposed to before where you were finding these aha moments and they just happened as you said? Yeah, I think that's very true. I think also like people who meet me now don't believe it, but I used to be very shy. I used to be the, you know, I was quite a quiet child. I didn't really have that much to say to people. And then, you know, you become an architect and artist and this is all internal work. You do a lot, mm -hmm. but you do need to know how to present your idea to someone. So, given that, I learned how to speak about my work. Sure. you know and it's funny when i saw the title of your podcast i was laughing because it's always what you want to say to your clients you just want to say trust me i know what i'm doing right you know and in parentheses it would be and then you should let me get on with it <laughs> but right. you can't uh, you can't ever say that because yeah. there is an important a piece of the process 
and by cutting them off you're cutting off the lifeblood of the of the project you know so you really want to be able to engage that you want to be able to engage their enthusiasm their pleasure their displeasure at something that you propose and they say oh that's never going to work for me and you want to figure out why you know and then you figure out something else that will work that's the kind of vitality of that process that I do enjoy, but that does mean that you have to select the people that you work with quite carefully because you have to be able to speak pretty frankly with them. You worked and collaborated with Ai Weiwei uh-huh. um, on a project, and especially more in the thinking about collaboration and engaging in that trust and working through both success and problems together. What's something you learned from him? And perhaps what's something you think he may have taken away from working with you? Oh, golly, I don't know that I can answer that question. That might be one that I uh, have to, you know, I can tell you what I think. Uh, well, he just has such an amazing presence and intelligence. You know, um, I was brought onto the project by a client who said, do you want, will you collaborate with Weiwei and like, you know, realize this project? And I said, sure. And then I saw what he was thinking about. And the idea was so intelligent that there was there was no reason not to work on it. There wasn't like a, oh, it originated with you and then I can't work on it or whatever, you know, I can't take it on and we can't develop it together. It was just so good. And so the quality of the thinking, I think, is really something that matters to me. It doesn't matter. I've worked with Karl Lagerfeld. He was a genius, you know, really a genius. I couldn't think of anyone more different than me, but particularly in my, you know, in the kinds of design that I gravitate towards or anything, but I have so much respect he was so incredible he had read every book in his immense library he knew what was in there yeah so there's a there's a ease of of connection and ease of language you know if you showed him one drawing he'd be like he understood that there were a hundred ones that went before it yeah and you wouldn't need to explain that but there are other people who don't trust you and you'd have to say, well, this isn't the first thing I came up with, you know, <laughs> this is actually yeah, you developing yeah. that chemistry and that synergy, the, the immediacy of that synergy is apparent when, when you're already sort of like starting to get, get working on something as opposed yeah. to letting it develop. Right. And, you know, and I've collaborated with musicians, I've collaborated with um, other artists. It's a really wonderful practice. It really is. It teaches you, regardless of who you're collaborating with, you learn from them and they learn from you. Let me ask you this. I mean, what does it mean in 2022 to be a woman of color and a leader in the architectural world? Uh, It's sparsely populated. Um, It's a very, very lamentable fact that there are very few women who are registered architects, women of color, very, very small percentage of that. And there are several reasons for it. It's quite an exacting profession. You don't really get to, um, and time-wise, it's very, very intensive. There are a lot of reasons why there aren't as many women. It's not the only reason. But it's also a very difficult world out there that's set up really to respect the timber of a man's voice automatically Mm. versus that of a woman's in a certain place. And these are kinds of, you know, this is wiring. You, you know, there's not much you can do about it other than, you know, maybe work harder to prove yourself and have to do all of these tiring things that, you know, aside from that, you wouldn't have to do. And it really is not a great thing, but I am seeing a change. So I'm really happy about that. Why is it so perhaps important 
to cultivate community and collective trust through design and, and architecture? What, what's the ultimate value of that? And, and what are some ways that perhaps you learn to cultivate that trust? Well, I think it's extreme. How else would we survive? If you think about it, and I think particularly going through the pandemic has made people think about that. They've made people realize how much they need other people. You know, it's not a, I'm going to take everything and run to the top of the mountain by myself. Right. You know, what are you going to do there? Who's going to make all that stuff that you need to live the way that you want? I mean, you really do. I think the last two years have been a really great lens for us to figure out how much we need everyone else in the world. And really then, how can we not make a world that suits us all? How can it just suit a few of us? That makes no sense. Yeah. It's understood that you know human history doesn't quite reflect that. But the major changes in human history, I think, do. And I think the way that I can do that is by really allowing people to see whether it's through and through artwork, it's quite easy to do to really see the the value of community, like whether I make a sculpture in Times Square and everybody jumps on it and lights up brighter. And then you're like, oh, see the power of community, see how much we can do, how much more we can do together. Yeah. Or I make something in the Smithsonian and I want people to see how their mood is affecting everyone else's and how it's a physical thing. You know, this interaction that we have with the people around us. And that we need to be conscious of that. We need to be sensitive to it. We need to be empathetic to it. And the one thing I will say is that I'm really hoping that the South Asian community will step up to support the arts much more. It's something that I, I see a glaring deficiency in. And if really, we have so many amazing, talented, successful people in this community. Why do they not commission modern architecture? That's incredible. Why are they not in the forefront of supporting artists? Why are they not fit in that? You really don't see enough of it. And I would encourage them to look around their community and see what they need to pick up. Well, you are a vehicle of this community and a vehicle of that acceleration. We're so grateful that, that you joined us, Suchi. I hope you'll come back and join us again. Thank you so much. I would love it. And you can check out more of Suchi's work at suchiready.com. Hope everyone is fortunate enough to enjoy the neuroesthetics of a lovely open space. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar. Ruckus Avenue Radio.